Well, we continue in Jesus' second main discourse in the book of Matthew. Remember, just as a broad context, uh, Matthew has included five main discourses of Jesus, main teaching sessions, if you will, throughout the book of Matthew. And it ties in with what Jesus says at the very end, make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And how do we know uh, what to obey? How do we know, what do we need to learn? And in broad measure, what we find in those five discourses, uh, the first one's the Sermon on the Mount, the second one we're in in chapter 10, what we find in there is teaching. How do we live? How do we live as Christians? And even as we do that, remember the context of chapter 10. Jesus is sending out his 12, his 12 apostles, those whom he's given a particular authority to be his representatives. That's what an apostle is. It's an emissary. It's it's someone who has the authority to speak on behalf of another, like an ambassador or like a power of attorney. He's He's sending these 12 out in a particular way. But Matthew records this for his audience, his Jewish Christian audience, so that they might extract timeless principles. So some of the things we see in Matthew, they're particular to the 12, but then there are definitely things that we come across that apply to Matthew's audience and by extension apply to all disciples everywhere, including us, especially as we think about how we go out and proclaim the gospel. And remember, I laid out briefly the structure of chapter 10. Uh, Like any good sermon, uh, like any good teaching, Jesus has structure. He's very structured and organized. And really how this chapter is structured is uh, primarily by this phrase, truly I say to you, truly I say to you. And, And that phrase introduces a promise, a reinforcement, something that Jesus is highlighting for his disciples. Uh, there's only one uh, place, uh, the, the, one of those sections, the third section ends, it doesn't have the truly I say to you, but it does have a promise, and we'll see that next week. Um, but what we see, what we see in those four sections, we saw the first section last week, and really that first section was the commission proper. It was the instructions that Jesus was giving to his 12 for this is what you're doing. And you remember the core of that. What was the core of their mission? Proclaim, preach, herald, that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And by implication, just as it's been elsewhere in Matthew, you need to repent. You need to turn your allegiance from sin and self, and you need to entrust yourself to the Messiah, to Jesus, and follow him with your whole life. That's the core of their message. That's the core of their message. It's the core of our message. It's what we proclaim. But the remaining three sections in Matthew, the first of which we're going to see today, is the response What's going to be the response of people to your proclamation? And then, if that's going to be the response of people, how do you, as the apostles, how do you as the disciples respond? How ought you to respond? People are going to respond this way. How are you going to respond? And so that's where we enter this morning. We start talking about those responses. And here's the big idea this morning for this text, and it's this. Prepare to be handed over and to endure to the end as a messenger of Jesus for final salvation. Prepare to be handed over, and we'll talk about what that phrase means in a second, but prepare to be handed over and to endure to the end as a messenger of Jesus for final salvation. And we're going to jump into verse 16. That'll be our first point this morning. But before we 
jump into that, I want to just reread verse 5 through 15 to remind us of the context of what Jesus has already said. So verse 5 says this, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Which leads us right into our section this morning. And in verse 16, our first main point is this. Be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. Be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. Look at verse 16 and what Jesus says next after what he just said in verses 5 through 15. It says this in verse 16. Behold, so now that's an intention-getting word. Behold, I am sending you out. Now this word for sending out, it's the same word Jesus has been using all along. This is the idea of, it's related to the word for apostle. It's the idea of sending out as an emissary sending out as an ambassador. I am sending you out as ambassadors, but as I'm sending you out, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Now that's interesting what Jesus is saying here, saying I'm sending you out as ambassadors, already giving you your commission, but as I'm sending you out, it's like this situation. It's like I'm sending sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, Jesus has already been talking about sheep in the context. Remember what he said? He, 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 talked, he looked out on the crowds. And he said, uh, these are like sheep without a shepherd. These are, these are Israelites, and their leaders have failed them. They failed them to such an extent that they're scattered, that they're not healed, they're not bound up. And really, uh, Jesus ties in with that imagery here. He, he already sent his apostles, and he said, all right, I'm sending you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but what we see here is the disciples themselves are sheep. The disciples themselves are Israelites. They've responded to Jesus' message, and now they're put on mission. They're put on mission as the sheep. But who are the wolves? Who are the wolves? Well, as we saw in uh, Ezekiel 34, which forms a huge backdrop to this section in Matthew, uh, the, the, it's really the leaders who failed their people. They, they, uh, they, they treated the sheep roughly. They really took advantage of the sheep. They took advantage of the leaders of Israel, both uh, uh, the kings, the elders, the religious leaders, the prophets even. They took advantage of the people of Israel for their own gain. And so even the Old Testament, uh, there's a couple places uh, uh, that indicate they're like wolves. Even in the Old Testament, the, the leaders who failed their job, they were taking advantage of those in their charge for themselves. They were described like wolves. So I think Jesus here is indicating, I'm sending you out disciples. I'm sending you out apostles as sheep in the midst of wolves. Where's the opposition coming from? Well, we've already seen it in Matthew and we're going to continue to see it. It's coming from the leadership. It's coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. 
It's coming from those who are, by and large, not every single person, but by and large, have taken advantage of those under their charge for their own selfish ends. I mean, the imagery is very vivid. I looked up on YouTube this week just trying to find some videos of what does it look like for a wolf, for a sheep to be in the midst of wolves. And it is, it is gruesome. It is gruesome. It is, and what is Jesus trying to communicate with this imagery? He's communicating there is imminent danger. There is imminent danger. I am sending you out into imminent danger. This is not a safe job. I'm sending you out. But then what he does, he says, okay, here's the dangerous situation. What do you do? What do you do uh, in response to that? Well, Jesus says this, therefore, so because it's this dangerous situation, therefore become shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So he's still using some animal metaphors here. He says two things. First, being shrewd or cunning as serpents. Actually, the language here, the word for shrewdness or wisdom, and the word for serpent, those two words are found in Genesis 3.1 to describe the serpent tempting Eve. It says the, the serpent was more cunning than all of the beasts of the field. It's kind of an odd phraseology to use, right? When you think of the word cunning, you usually think that uh, usually has negative connotations. It usually means what? That, that someone is, they're, they're clever, they're wise, they can see people, they can see situations, but then what do they do with them? They manipulate them to their own ends. They manipulate them for their own ends. But Jesus is here saying, all right, disciples, you be cunning. You be cunning like serpents. Understand people, understand situations, but then he doesn't just stop there. He tacks on a second quality that they need and be innocent as doves. Both together, not just one or the other, but both together. Instead of, instead of the disciples, what are the disciples supposed to do? The disciples are supposed to see circumstances, see people, know how people are, know how people react. They're to be cunning, but not for evil ends or self-interest but rather for the interests of the kingdom and its message. They're to be innocent. They're to be innocent. You put, pair both of those together. Understand people, understand the situation as you go out. Be wise about it. Be shrewd about it. But couple that with innocence. Couple that with innocence. Couple that with the kingdom righteousness that Jesus has already commanded his disciples to portray in Matthew 5 through 7. Display innocent character. Display innocent character together with that cunning. It's the idea that if people are going to attack you, if the wolves are going to attack you, don't give them an excuse. Don't give them an excuse. Know that you're going to, and as we'll see, know that you're going to be attacked. Know who people are going to respond to you, but don't give them an excuse. Have right, righteousness, have innocence coupled with that cunning. Just like Jesus. Wasn't Jesus? Couldn't you describe Jesus as cunning? Uh, as he interacts, you see this in the Gospels, as he interacts with people, he understands how people are thinking. He understands their motivations. He knows how people are. And yet he's, and he's always leveraging the situation. Even when he's on, seemingly on the defensive initially, he leverages the situation for that person's good, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom to them. And the disciples, as his representatives, are to do the same Thing. Now, you might be asking yourself a question. Why does Jesus intentionally 
knowingly put his disciples in harm's way? Isn't that a good question? Why is Jesus knowingly, intentionally putting his disciples in harm's way? Why would Jesus do that for his disciples, those who are closest to him? Why would he do that? Well, I think there's two reasons contextually that we could answer. One, look back up at verse 15, how he ended the last section. Notice what he said. He said this, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, what we saw in the last section is, you're proclaiming this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. That's the only way of escaping God's judgment. That's the only way of escaping God's eternal wrath. The stakes are as high as they could possibly be. And when the stakes are that high, then life and survival and safety and comfort dwindle in, up against that need. And Jesus is going to continue to say that in the rest of chapter 10. The stakes are so high the disciples have already in, have been brought into the community of faith. They've already entrusted themselves to Jesus. They've already repented. They're safe from God's judgment in that eternal sense. But the stakes for others are high. The stakes for those you're going among are high. Until they repent and trust themselves to Christ, they will be under God's judgment. And so the harm that Jesus, he's putting them in harm's way because the stakes for those people they're going and trying to reach are so high. But we could say a second thing. We could say a second thing. And it goes back to something that's already been hinted at in the book of Matthew and will continue to become clear as we go. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52. He's the one that brings and rescues and ransoms his people through suffering, through harm being done to him. That's what Jesus is going to do. Well, the disciples, the apostles, are his representatives. They're his ambassadors. And as he'll say next week, you shouldn't expect any better treatment than what I'm getting. And so it's this reality that we see in Jesus and extends even through the church. You can see this in church history. Suffering advances the kingdom. Jesus is intentionally putting his disciples in harm's way. He knows they're going to suffer because suffering advances the kingdom. If you're going to be a representative for the kingdom, then you better get ready to suffer because God builds his church through suffering because that's how he built his church even through Jesus himself. What's there for us as we see this? Understand that Jesus puts his people in harm's way because so much is at stake and the suffering of his people is a means of spreading that message. Suffering is a means of spreading that message. And even as we go out, how do we take his instruction to be cunning and innocent? Well, let's think about it like this. Work at understanding circumstances and people and know how to act to leverage, not for yourself, but for Christ's kingdom. Be strategic for the kingdom and don't be naive about people, but always act with moral purity. 
displaying kingdom righteousness in your dealings with others. Don't give people an excuse to come after you except for your message and righteous character. So that's the first thing we see in this section as we see Jesus unfolding the response of how people are going to act. Be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. Second, we see this. Beware of people handing you over to legal and religious action. Beware of people handing you over to legal and religious action. Look at verse 17. Jesus says this. So he had one command, be, be, uh, be uh, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now he issues another command. Beware of people. Beware of people. Now that seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem kind of a bleak thing? Like, just be on your guard against people. That's pretty broad, right? It's really a broad statement. What do you mean, Jesus? Beware of people. Be on the lookout. Be aware of people. Well, he explains. For what? They will hand you over into councils. They will hand you over into councils. Now, let's talk about this word hand over. It depends on what your translation renders it. But uh, this idea of a council this idea of a council is like a local magistrate, local magistrate, something like that, a local court of appeal. So this was set up in Judaism. The Romans allowed uh, the Israelites, by and large, to kind of govern their own affairs to an extent. And so if a criminal case came up in a local city, you would bring it to the local council. The local elders would, would discuss the matter, and they would pronounce guilt or innocence, except in the case of capital punishment, because Capital punishment was reserved at this time for Rome alone. So this language of handing over, it's the idea of handing someone over into custody. It's the idea of saying someone sees you doing something wrong. It's like, hey, that person's breaking the law. I'm going to hand them over to the authorities. That's the idea of this word. And that's the context. That's what Jesus is saying. Beware of people because they're going to hand you over into councils. That's a legal uh, jurisdiction. Here's the thing you have to understand, though. At this place in time, uh, there wasn't a distinction between civil and uh, civil authority, civil cases, and religious cases. They were one and the same. That there's no division between the two. And so that's why even Jesus goes on very, the very next phrase, and he says this. And they're going to flog you in their synagogues. The synagogue is a place of worship. It's a place where the the law is spoken and it's taught and it's applied. It's the analogy to the church and what we're doing here today. So in the place of worship, they're going to flog you. And this is rooted even back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, you don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, it talks about bringing a case before uh, Israel's leaders, and then pronouncing guilt or innocence, and if they had violated either a civil uh, law or a religious law, it didn't matter, there could be guilt, and the person could be flogged up to 40 lashes. And what's the picture? The picture is of someone, of people hearing the message. This is why this is happening, because what are the disciples doing? They're pronouncing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they're hearing about Christ, they're hearing about kingdom, and they're saying, what you are saying is against the law. It's against the law of God, and it's against the law of the land. And they hand them over to the authorities. And Jesus continues with this picture, verse 18. And before governors... And even kings, 
you will be brought. And now at that moment, we get an insight that now Jesus is talking beyond the mission that of the 12. The mission of the 12, remember, he already said that he's restricted for right now to essentially Galilee and to Israel. To, uh, the 12 are only supposed to go to the people of Israel. But there's no... There, there's not kings really in Israel at this point, and there's only one governor. But here we've got plural governors and plural kings, and what Jesus is thinking, he knows what's going to happen in the future, and he knows the mission he's sending them on right now is going to eventually go to the nations. That's how Matthew ends. And as they go out, the disciples, the apostles, and their descendants, the church, are going to go out and they're going to be handed over over to governors and kings. You see this in the book of Acts. It is very clear in the book of Acts. Paul stands before kings. He stands before governors. Why? Well, we see the reasons on account of me. That's on account of Christ for testimony to them. That's the governors and kings and to the nations. See, you see we're among the nations now. We're not just among Israel anymore. So Jesus isn't just thinking, uh, even, even in this mission that he's giving to the apostles, there's no evidence that they were flogged uh, in the, this current mission to just Israel. There's no evidence that they were handed over to authorities to this extent. So Jesus is thinking of the future, and he's thinking of the time past his ascension. And notice why they're brought. Who's bringing them? Well, certainly uh, the people that are handing them over, they're handing them over to the authorities. Why are they being handed over? Because of Jesus, because of his name on his account. And they said, we heard you speaking about Jesus. We heard you speaking about his kingdom. We need testimony. We need you to give testimony because you're accused of subverting the law of the land. You're accused of subverting the law of the land. That's why the humans want to bring them before uh, the government and legal and religious action. But did you notice the passive of the verb there? You will be brought. From a human perspective, they're being brought for testimony because they, they're subverting the law of the land, but God has another idea, doesn't he? You will be brought. God's orchestrating things so that you will be brought on account of Jesus' name for testimony to governors, to kings, and to the nations. The very thing that the humans are trying to do to get, uh, get these people ultimately executed or at very least punished is the very thing that God is going to use and open up for a door for testimony to Christ, to open the door wider, to send the message wider, which is exactly what you see happen in the book of Acts. How do we apply this? How do we think about this? We're on the same mission. We're the descendants of these 12. We don't have the exact same uh, th abilities and commission that the 12 did, but it's similar, even as Jesus has been thinking of a time beyond his ascension, this is what his disciples are going to do. Well, know this. Know that if you are faithfully proclaiming Christ and his kingdom, you will be handed over to religious and political authorities. Don't be surprised. I love how clear Jesus is. Jesus isn't doing a bait and switch. He is telling you ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. And there's a sort of freedom that comes from that, knowing, okay, I'm going out there, and if I'm faithful as, as, a, as, 
as a minister, as a, as a representative of the king, as an ambassador of the king, if I'm being faithful, this is what's going to happen to me. Okay, well, I guess that's what's going to happen to me then. So don't be surprised. Know that people will do this to you. As we go out and we proclaim the gospel to people, you should have a certain healthy skepticism towards people, even as you seek to love them by proclaiming the gospel. We love people. Skepticism doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means that I know how people do, uh, what people think, and I know how they operate. I love them. I want them to, to embrace this message, but I'm not going to be surprised if you turn me over to the authorities. And we've seen this, haven't we? I've heard of cases, what happened during COVID, when churches, after a little while, everyone's confused, what's going on? And the churches said, all right, we're going to start meeting again. And then what happened? People among the congregation turned their own congregations in to the government. That happens in police states. It happens in China. It happens all over the place. You should not be surprised at this. This is how people think and how people operate. Jesus is very clear. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me have a, a family moment with you. I fully expect to be arrested within the next decade. I do. Because what is being spoken from the pulpit, what is being spoken from God's word, is offensive to people. It's being called hate speech. That's what it's called up in Canada. You can't do conversion therapy anymore. It's punishable by arrest and prison time. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But that's okay. Because Jesus' kingdom is worth it. And that brings us to the second application. Know that when you are handed over to the authorities, this is part of how God is getting the message about Christ and his kingdom out. That's one of the means that Christ himself uses to get the message of the kingdom out. I remember during um, the, the whole COVID stuff, MacArthur said, uh, well, what if you get arrested? Someone asked him, what if you get arrested? He's like, well, I've always wanted a prison ministry. And it, there's, we don't know how God's going to work. We can't second guess how God is working and getting his message out. So we've seen we need to be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. We need to beware of people handing you over to legal and religious action. And then thirdly, you need, don't need, you need not be anxious. You shouldn't be anxious for how, what to say when you're handed over. Look at verse 19. But when you are handed over, you see that language again? So Jesus was just talking about you're going to be handed over. Now let me talk to you a little bit more about what that's going to look like when you're handed over. So when you're handed over into a legal or religious sphere, when you're standing before governors, kings, courts, whatever it looks like, listen to this. Here's his next command. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious how or what you should speak now, think about that for a minute, right? You, imagine yourself getting handed over to the authorities, and you're brought before um, a, a judge and a courtroom, and they're bringing you there because you've been proclaiming Christ and the kingdom. Now, you, you, it would be very easy to be anxious, wouldn't it? Uh, not because you're necessarily even fearful for your life, although that's probably part of it, but it's also getting the message right, right? Uh, you want to speak rightly of Christ in that situation, and that's the issue here. Like, how and what manner am I supposed to speak, and what? What am I supposed to speak? 
Now, these folks already know the gospel, don't they? I mean, Jesus told them, here's your message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So he's not talking about, like, you don't already know the gospel. You haven't, you haven't studied. You're not a faithful messenger. They already know this stuff. But putting it all together when you're under pressure like that, isn't that hard? Isn't that a really anxiety-producing sort of situation? And Jesus says, don't be anxious about that. Why? Well, he explains for it will be given to you, it's a divine passive, meaning God's the one behind the giving, for it will be given to you in that hour what you ought to say. Now notice, this verse gets abused sometimes and says, well, you know, you don't need to study to preach. You know, God's just going to give it to you right there when you get up to the pulpit. I'm serious, people believe this, but notice the context. The context is when you're in a judicial setting, when it's really intimidating, that's when you don't need to be anxious. He's not talking about not being prepared. They're already prepared. They already had the message down. He's talking about putting it all together when you're under pressure like that, immense pressure, frightening situation. God's going to give it to you what to say, how to pull it together. How is that the case? Verse 20, for you are not those speaking, but the spirit of your father is the one speaking in you which here we see the fulfillment. Remember what John the Baptist said? The one who's coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's part of the new covenant promise that the Holy Spirit's going to indwell you in your life as a believer, and he's going to empower your obedience. And this is a specific application of that. It's actually a hint that Jesus is thinking beyond his ascension because the Spirit doesn't come and dwell in you until after Pentecost. So he's saying, this, this mission is going to continue for a long time, but when you get before governors or kings or you're before a courtroom and you're giving testimony on my behalf, don't worry about it. In that situation, don't worry about it because this Father's going to speak through you through the Spirit dwelling in you. You're still speaking, but the Spirit's going to empower you to bear testimony to Christ because in that moment, Christ is being honored. Christ is being lifted high. What do we take away from this? This is not an excuse to not know the message of Christ in the gospel. We need to have the gospel down. We talked about that last week, right? The gospel is not just uh, my entryway into the Christian life, but it's for my whole Christian life. So I should be rehearsing the gospel day by day by day because that's who I am as a follower of Christ. But So we should know the message of Christ in his gospel because it's so dear to us and because we're proclaiming it. But... Here, think about it this way. You need to know the message of Christ and his gospel, but always, whether it's in a judicial setting, whether it's in a religious setting, whether it's a person on the street, whether it's before a king or a governor, always, in every circumstance, depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for his assistance. That's what I'm thinking. When I, when I have an opportunity for the gospel, I get to speak with someone, just happenstance, right? We get into a spiritual conversation. There's three people involved. I'm talking, there's the listener, and there's the spirit who's the one who can convert that person anyway. I can't change them. I can't change their hearts, but I'm faithfully speaking the message, and I'm praying, and I'm pleading, spirit, empower me, help me, but also work on that other person's heart to save them. So don't be anxious. Be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. Beware of people handing you over to legal and religious action. Don't be anxious for what to say when you are handed over and then next, endure being handed over unto death for final salvation. Endure being handed over unto death for final salvation. Look at verse 21. 
Now, brother will hand over, there's our word again. Jesus is still talking about, you're going to be handed over to the authorities. That's that language. So he's continuing to describe what's this going to be like, this being handed over, going to be look like. Now, brother will hand over brother unto death. And a father, a child. And children will rise up against their parents and they will have them put to death. Wow. That's almost unimaginable, especially in Jesus' day when the family was so tight-knit, so close. But here you have, you got two siblings in the same family, and one brother is going to hand over this brother to the authorities. And remember why? Because they're proclaiming Christ and his kingdom that's not enough, a father, a father is going to look at his child that he gave birth to, or that he caused to be given birth to, and he's going to look at his child and say, child, you are proclaiming Christ and his kingdom. What you are doing is against the state. It's against the law. I'm going to turn you over to the authorities. And vice versa. And children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And this is knowing it. This is what you are doing, mom and dad, in proclaiming Christ and his kingdom. It's against the state. It's against the law. It's against religion. And it's worthy of death. And so I'm going to hand you over to the authorities and have you put to death. And Jesus is clear, the motivation, what's the motivation? What possible motivation could there be for the closest, the most intimate family members being torn apart and betraying one another like this? What's the motivation? Well, verse 22 explains it. You will be hated by all. Why? On account of my name. You see, when the message of Jesus and his kingdom is repent, Turn your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Christ. And then you become part of the family. Christ puts his name on you and you're his representative. You're his disciple. And you have no higher allegiance when that happens. You have no higher allegiance than Jesus when that happens. And people are going to hate that. People are going to hate that. You see... The claims of Jesus and his kingdom are totally against the self-rule which all of us who are naturally born in Adam desire. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, right? Uh, they're supposed to be the steward rulers under God, following him, seeking to glorify him. And what do they do? They seek to usurp God's reign by becoming their own independent rulers. I want to be king. I want to rule my life. It's my choice. It's my desires. I'm the king. No one gets to tell me what to do. Friends, that's the heart of sin. That is who we all are apart from Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you this. If God is the true king and you've got all these little individual people saying, I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm the king, or the queen, right? It's everyone. What is that called? That's called a rebellion. That's called a rebellion. We are all rebels. There's no one innocent, naturally. We are all naturally born this way. We are all rebels against the true and rightful King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And what happens when you, as a seeking to be a usurper king, you hear the message, Christ is the king, Christ is going to establish his kingdom, and everyone who doesn't bow the knee to his lordship will be judged rightfully so and justly so by the fierce wrath of Almighty God. That might make you a little angry, right? It might make you hate this foreign ruler, this foreign, hey, God's getting in on my turf. Jesus is getting in on my turf. We naturally hate this message, which is why it takes an act of the Spirit of God, a miracle, to change our hearts so that we listen to the message, repent and swear allegiance to Christ, where you see that Christ, to serve Christ and to serve under his rule is the best thing and the best life because he brings us to himself. He brings us to God who is designed to satisfy our souls at the deepest level. But here's the thing. If the self is at the center of you, your, your universe, if this, yourself is at the center of your universe, then no one can get closer than yourself, right? And so when someone outside of yourself threatens your own rule over your life, you will do anything to protect the center of your universe, including handing over your family, those closest to you, to death to protect it. That is what the depravity of sin does to us. But there is good news through Christ, as we have said. You can be released from that self-imploding kingdom of self through repenting and entrusting yourself to Christ. And if you haven't done that today, you need to do it. Jesus is calling you through his word to repent, to entrust yourself to him, and to follow him and to swear allegiance with your whole life. But notice, notice in all of this, right, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. Your friends and your family are going to hand you over to the authorities. It's going to happen. So don't be surprised, but notice what the response here is. End of verse 22. But the one who endures to the end this one will be saved. Well, what's the end that's being talked about? Well, certainly in context, Jesus is talking about death, right? He's talking about making it to the end of your life. And you could broaden that in the broader scope. You could say, well, the end would be until Christ comes back or until you die. Because here, people are handing you over to put you to death. And you need to endure to death in order to be saved. Think about endurance. What is endurance uh, talking about here? Well, let's think about the opposite. Failure to endure. What would failure to endure look like in this context? Failure to endure would be a renunciation of Christ, his name, him as king. It would be say, all right, the family pressure is too much. Uh, the, 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 the relationship, the relational cost is too much. Uh, I'm going to renounce Christ. Uh, I'm not going to follow him anymore. That would be a failure to endure. You see, the life of a Christian, we've said this before and we keep saying it, is a life of faith. It's not a point of faith. Yes, there is a point in time where um, the Holy Spirit grants, grants repentance, grants understanding, and grants you the ability to repent and entrust yourself to who uh, Jesus is. But faith connects you with Christ. 
And the life of faith is a continual reliance, a continual entrusting yourself to Christ every single day. It's every single day that only through Christ and my connection with him am I saved. And to endure means my allegiance is to Christ, my trust is to him every single day. And if at any day I renounce him, I renounce his name, I renounce him as king, I'm not going to make it. The one who endures to the end, this one will be saved. Think about how Jesus said it in Matthew 7. Remember how he ended the Sermon on the Mount? The way is narrow, the gate is narrow, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and the way is broad, and the gate's broad that leads to destruction. Remember what we said, the gate's not the beginning of the Christian life, it's the end. Because the Sermon on the Mount says, here's what the life of a disciple looks like. Here's what the life of a follower looks like. And it's easy to get off the path. So what do you need to do? You need to endure. Endure how? By your own strength? No. By the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and by looking to Christ every single day in dependence and trust and allegiance. Only those who continue to entrust themselves to Christ, repent and follow him as king, will escape God's judgment and have interest in his kingdom. And you say, well, wait a minute, Chris. Are you saying that I can lose my salvation? Isn't that the question like you're all asking, right? Or at least some of you, right? Uh, no. No, I'm not saying that because what Jesus said in Matthew 7 is that he said, there's many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and who will not enter the kingdom of heaven because what does Jesus say? I never knew you. I never knew you. Those who entrust themselves to Christ, the miracle of conversion that happens in their life, it produces an enduring faith. And we experience that as endurance. It's work. It's hard work, but it's always utterly, only dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But why is he telling it? What's, what's Jesus highlighting for his disciples here? He's saying, look, hard times are coming. Hard times are coming. You're going to be opposed, and you need to be ready for that. You need to steal yourself and be ready to endure, because it's going to happen. So endure. Endure How? by looking to Christ, by swearing allegiance to him, by repenting every single day, because Christ is king. Only the one who endures to the end, it will be saved. This is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Every person whom God saves, he will keep until the end, but we experience that reality as perseverance, as sweat and blood and tears, because we love Christ. How do we apply this? Know that in following and proclaiming Christ, there will be those in the closest imaginable relationships with you who will betray you because Christ and his claims offend them and their self-rule. Don't be surprised. Now what happened with Judas? Lived with Christ for years, three or four years. And he... He betrays Jesus. He hands him over to the authorities. It's exactly what happened. So why should we expect any better treatment than our master? And you may be here today, and you might realize myself is still at the center of my universe. And friends, what you see in this is that if yourself is at the center of your universe, it's a small, pitiful little kingdom. Because you're going to destroy everyone around you to make it about you. And that is a pitiful condition. And so what you need to do today is you need to repent and trust yourself to Christ and swear allegiance to his kingdom, which brings you into 
to use a Paul Tripp phrase, his big sky kingdom. It's an expanding kingdom. It's a beautiful kingdom. It's the majestic kingdom because it's the only kingdom that was designed to endure forever. Endure in entrusting yourself to Christ and following him to make it to the end of life or until he comes back. You don't endure. You're not going to escape God's judgment and enter Christ's kingdom. Steal yourself for the hard things that will come your way, but endure in dependence on God's grace to keep you standing till the end. So we need to be shrewd and innocent in the face of imminent danger. We need to beware of people handing you over to legal and religious action. That's going to happen. Don't be anxious for what to say when you're handed over. Endure being handed over unto death for final salvation. And finally this, verse 23, keep moving the message until the Son of Man comes. Keep moving the message until the Son of Man comes. Look at verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, so everything that Jesus has been talking about and that he will talk about, it could come under the heading of persecution. People are persecuting you. People are seeking to hand you over to the authorities. That's persecution. But notice what he says. When they persecute you in this city, remember what Jesus said in 10, 5 through 15, right? At the end, he says, look, uh, if they don't listen to you in one city, move to the next, right? So he's kind of picking up on that idea here, right? You're, you're going to city by city in Israel and then by extension, city by city in the world. And they persecute you in one city. Notice his command here. His command is flee. Flee. Flee into the different city. Flee to another city. That's what he's saying. Now think about this for a minute. Why would Jesus have to tell his disciples to flee? If you're getting persecuted, isn't it kind of natural that it's like, yeah, I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, I'm going to leave. But Jesus has to command his disciples to flee. Why is that? Well, think about this, right? Why are they going city to city? They're seeking to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? They're seeking to gather disciples. They're seeking to reach those who will repent and entrust themselves to Christ. Well, you can imagine a scenario where you're in a city and you, there's some people who respond, and you actually see this very thing in Acts. You see some people who respond, and they're like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to swear allegiance to him. I want to follow him with my whole life. But then the overwhelming majority of the response is persecution. So you got some people who are doing well, and then you got some, and responding, and you got some people, a majority of people who are against you, and they're persecuting you. And Jesus is saying, leave. You can see examples of this in Acts, uh, uh, you know, Acts 16 with Philippi, or really anywhere Paul goes, right? He gets some positive response, but the overwhelming majority of people are persecuting him, and Jesus is saying, leave. And you're like, well, wait, 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 wait. There's disciples here. There's people responding. I don't, want, I don't want to leave that. I don't want to leave that because those people are, are, need growth. They need care. All of these things. Notice how Jesus supports his command here. This is amazing. This is amazing. And this is our truly I say to you statement that ends the section. For truly, so flee, get out of there, go to the next city. For truly I say to you, you will, here's a very literal rendering of the verse. You will certainly not complete the cities of Israel until the Son of Man should come. Now, some translations, including the ASV, say before the Son of Man should come. That is inaccurate. It's until. The NASB gets it right in this case. You will certainly not complete the cities of Israel until the Son of Man should come. 
This structure happens a ton in the book of Matthew, this, this, this grammatical structure. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Turn to Matthew 5, 26, so that we understand the exact argument that Jesus is making here. Matthew 5, 26. This is just one example. It happens many times, in the, uh, at least a good handful of times in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to this. You'll see the similarities. Don't notice so much the content as the similarities of the structure. 526 says this, Truly I say to you, there's our phrase, you will never, there's our never, get out until, it's the same exact words that is used in Matthew 10, 23, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What does that mean? It means you're not getting out of prison until you pay the last penny. In other words, you need to pay the last penny before you get out of prison, right? That's what that means. You need to pay the last penny. That's the prerequisite to you getting out of prison. You're not going to get out until that happens. Same structure in Matthew 10, 23. Truly, I say to you, you will never complete the cities of Israel right? That's where the 12 were sent out. We're sent out to Israel, to the cities of Israel, to the geographic land, the historical geographic land of Israel. You're never going to complete the cities of Israel until the Son of Man might come. Meaning what? The Son of Man has to come first before you complete all the cities of Israel. That's what that means. What is he talking about? He's talking about completing the mission, right? Move on, because you're not going to complete the mission to Israel anyway until the Son of Man comes. Well, that leads to another question. What does that mean, the Son of Man might come? What does that mean? Now, Jesus is referring to himself. We've already seen this title in the book of Matthew. Uh, turn back to Matthew 8.20. This is the first time he uses, of it, uh, uses, of it, uses it. Matthew 8.20, and he says this. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Well, what does that imply? It means the son of man's already there, isn't it? Son of man has already come. He's there. He's right there. See, uh, look over at uh, chapter 9, verse 6. This is the second use of, his, of that phrase, the son of man but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm here. He's already arrived. But there are other places in Matthew. Turn to Matthew 16, for an example. There are other places in Matthew, and we'll see more of these as we walk through it, where the Son of Man hasn't come yet. Um, let's uh, look at Matthew 16, 27. Notice this. For the Son of Man is going to come. Wait a minute, I thought he was here. He's going to come? Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there's another one of our statements, there are some standing here who will never taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So which is it? Has he come or is he coming? Both. This is what we call two comings, right? Jesus has, is already there, but he also speaks of another coming, what we call the second coming. 
Uh, this is all rooted in, uh, Dan- all of this language of the Son of Man and the Son of Man coming is rooted in Daniel 7. Let me take you back there really briefly just to remind ourselves that this is rooted in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. That's the coming that Jesus is talking about. Notice who he comes to. He comes to the ancient of days. And you might think, oh, okay, so that's the ascension when Jesus goes to heaven. Well, that's what I thought too until this last week when you see the surrounding context of Daniel 7, everything's happening on earth. The kingdoms uh, of men, these ugly beasts that are being talked about earlier in Matthew 7, they're on earth. The throne is being, I think, set up on earth for the ancient of days. And then the son of man is coming to the ancient of days who's sitting in judgment on earth which really matches a lot of what Jesus is going to say in the book of Matthew. The Son of Man is going to come with the clouds down to earth. All that to say, what is the argument he's making in Matthew 10, 23? You're not going to complete the mission to the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Until Jesus comes again, you're not going to finish the mission, which means what? The mission is ongoing. Keep going to the next town and the next town. You're not going to finish it. You're like, but there's people there. I mean, you look at Paul and he's like, wait, you got, you got like baby Christians that you're leaving behind in Philippi. And he moves on to the next city. Why? Because you're not going to complete the mission until the Son of Man comes. Meaning what? Keep moving the message. Keep moving the message. Think about it like this. When we do personal evangelism, right, you, you always want, you, you want to talk to that person. You want to see that person saved. You want to see that person repent and entrust themselves to Christ. But maybe, think, envision a picture with me. Think of an arrow pointing to the right, so a horizontal arrow pointing to the right. In the middle of that arrow, you've got the cross. And let's say the cross stands for that point of conversion. Well, before people get to the cross, you want to move them and edge them to the right, don't you? You want to push them towards the right. People that are already converted to the, to the, to the right of that cross, uh, they still need the gospel. They still need the same message. The Christians need the gospel. So you're trying to always push people to the right, to a greater understanding of the gospel or to entrusting themselves to Christ. And that's this principle here. Keep moving the message. You may not see the person converted. You may get one conversation. You may get one little itty bit of a push uh, forward to the right for that person. But keep moving the message. Give thanks for the opportunities you have to advance the message, but keep moving. If someone's not responsive or is hostile, keep moving to those that will listen. Don't assume that you have to be the one to complete the job. God uses many instruments to complete the mission because it's his mission. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. We're always on mission until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. 
let us be faithful stewards to our mission because we are being saved by the gospel and brought to Christ in his glory and we desire others the same. That's our motivation. Which kind of leads us into a concluding thought. I, I know, I know some of you are struggling with guilt. You hear this, you hear Jesus call in Matthew 10 and you're like, I'm, I'm a failure. I have not been faithful. Well, we've all been there. I've been there. What do you do when you feel guilt for not obeying Jesus' call to be faithful to the mission, to not be faithful to proclaim the gospel? How do you deal with that guilt? The gospel. Jesus, I have not been faithful in following you and being a messenger for the kingdom, and I've blown it. I've blown it for so many years. You confess that and you say, but I know my righteousness is you. I want to repent of not being a faithful messenger. I, I entrust myself to you. I trust that you pay the price for my, my cowardice, my, 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 my laziness. I trust that you paid the price for me on the cross, and you've given me your own righteousness in my place. And so I know that I stand without guilt before a holy God because of you. And you meditate on that, and you love that, right? We love the gospel. It's like, yes, I stand before a holy God, clean and without blemish because of Christ. I need to share this. And you see how that's different? Guilt is a bad motivator. It's like pain. It alerts us to something that's wrong, but you don't want to stay in guilt. God doesn't want people motivated by guilt. He wants people motivated out of love and delight in the gospel, which is why we meditate on the gospel day after day to remind ourselves this is amazing news and I need to pass it on to others. When you're excited about something and when you see its relevance to yourself day after day, you're going to want to share it to other people. That's how the gospel helps you deal with guilt over the mission. But maybe you're here today and you're just flat out guilty because you know before a holy God, I am guilty. I deserve his wrath and I know it, but I don't know what to do. Well, friend, it's the gospel. It's the same exact message. Repent and entrust yourself to Christ. He has paid your price in your behalf if you will entrust yourself to him. He has been your righteousness in your place so that you can be counted righteous before God and you can join the mission with us. If you don't know how to do that, you need to talk more. Talk with me, talk with Steve, talk with Jim. We would love to do that with you. Prepare to be handed over and to endure to the end as a messenger of Jesus for final salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for rescuing us and putting us on mission. Help us to be faithful this week. Lord, even if it's baby steps, even if it's just a small little ways that we can see there's an opportunity for a conversation. I need to speak of you. Lord, help us to do it, to stick our foot through the cracks in conversations that we see, and to be bold. Make us a bold people because we love you. Thank you, O Lord Jesus. Help us this week and save more people for yourself. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.